Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. So welcome back, everyone, to the second part of our two-part series, talking with the Canadian Pain Task Force co-chairs, Dr. Fiona Campbell and Maria Hudspeth about the national strategy to address some of the concerns and challenges associated with accessing pain services nationally. So we're going to pick up where we left off, uh, talking with Dr. Fiona Campbell and discussing challenges associated with the use of opiate analgesics and cannabinoids. Yes, so I'll just begin with making some clarifying points about the opioid crisis because I don't want to underestimate or minimize this. Uh, We know that there are uh, nearly 14 predominantly young people dying nearly every day uh, from illicit fentanyl um, that stops people breathing so they die. This has not all been generated by overprescribing for pain, although we know that now know that that is a contributory factor. In addition to the opioid crisis, we also have a pain crisis. So I think we really need to strike a balance between making opioids available for pain treatment while minimizing opioid-related harms. There are many treatments to treat chronic pain, including other medications, physical treatments, and psychological treatments. And I sometimes refer to these as the three Ps, so pharmacological, physical, and psychological treatments. But if these are not effective, people living with significant pain uh, and suffering should be offered a trial of opioids with the intention of improving function and quality of life by clinicians who have the skills to be able to do this safely and effectively. I do believe there had been a period of overprescribing for which probably the pharmaceutical companies were responsible. But in response to this, the pendulum has swung too far, Mm -hmm. and there have now been these unintended consequences for people living with pain, as you allude. So people with forced tapering, having their opioids cut off, uh, who are now suffering with unimaginable pain, or or heading to the streets and finding uh, fentanyl, dying from this. So uh, this is something that's unconscionable in a developed society such as ours. And we also have doctors and nurse practitioners refusing to prescribe Mm -hmm. opioids for fear of reprisal from the professional bodies. So patients going into withdrawal, seeking illicit uh, opioids, suffering in silence and considering suicide. Uh, So it really is a balance uh, and opioids do need to remain available, certainly for the time being until something better comes along. There's a reason that opioids have been used for thousands of years, and that is because they work. We just have to strike this balance. Mm. To your comment about um, opioid uh, taking opioids that lead to pain. This is something called opioid-induced hyperalgesia, and it's a complicated physiology uh, whereby opioid receptors in the body, paradoxically, when they're overstimulated by opioids, can lead to an increase in pain. The mechanism is complex. It's uh, uh, likely pertaining to something called NMDA receptors, uh, which is not really necessary to go into here, but it's a real phenomenon. And so mm-hmm. actually some people who, uh, I, I think people should be offered the opportunity to taper. And for some of those people, if some of their pain is related to opioid-induced hyperalgesia, their pain might actually improve. 
Uh, and then your comments about opioid use disorder. I think there are uh, people with opioid, uh, and I like the language that you've used. I think we have to get away from stigmatizing language such as addictions uh, to you know people living with uh, opioid uh, use disorder or substance use disorder. Um, but people with opioid use disorder often have pain. Mm. And so we still need to treat the pain. Um, so the kind of intersection uh, between opioid use disorder, pain, marginalization, and poverty are um, uh, huge. And this is a very complicated area. And yeah. just because one has opioid use disorder doesn't mean that their pain should not be addressed. Uh, I know that uh, Maria also has strong feelings about this. So mm. I'm going to uh, wonder if we can tag team and she uh, take take this a little further. Yeah, so maybe I'll get you to comment on that as well, Maria. You know, I think one of the things that I find so uh, noticeable in the current landscape is just that in common speech and certainly the media and at conferences, you hear the word opioids now and people no longer think pain control. They think addiction. And there's been some recent interesting studies that looked at media mentions of the word opioids over the last five years. And just that the whole positioning of opioids has completely shifted from an understanding of opioids as a medically necessary for some people tool for pain management totally to seeing opioids through the lens of substance use, harms, and addiction. And I think that that impact cannot be understated. Physicians are people too, and they're influenced not just by research and guidelines and standards, but by the air that we're breathing in our local communities, the things that they read in the newspaper, the things that they hear on uh, the radio. So the fact that that shift has happened um, and the fact that that has created in tr just tremendous stigmatization for people who live with pain, where now people, if they are able to get opioids or are using opioids for pain management, they're often hiding it from their mm -hmm. employer, their families, their friends. We hear lots of stories of people living in rural communities where they're driving an hour or two hours away to another community where they don't know people in order to fill their prescriptions because of the stigma. And I think that's really compounded the experience for people who live with pain. It's one thing to have access to opioids. It's another thing to feel criminalized yeah. uh, because you need medication. So I think um, that context really is playing a large role and even where we've been able to change certain policies here in BC, our College of Physicians and Surgeons created legally binding standards around opioid prescribing, the first legally binding prescribing standards in Canada. And the first iteration of that standard you know, in my view, it was quite unclear. It was very stigmatizing. We did a lot of work with our college, and there were some subsequent uh, revisions. The policy now is very explicit that physicians can't discriminate on the basis of someone using opioids for pain. You know, it's very uh, much more compassionate and c clear and 
despite that change in the policy, the practice has not changed. So I think there's been just such an incredible pendulum swing away from opioids. And so even when you change the policy that's meant to drive prescribing, it's not actually changing the practice. So this is a really wicked problem. To the point Fiona made about um, the role of pharmaceutical companies in the historical prescribing of opioids, you know, I think we, I would agree that pharmaceutical companies played a role. And I think we need to look at the broad system enablers to this problem. The fee-for-service model, you know, it does not enable best practice pain care. Um, It certainly enables writing a prescription. When you've got seven minutes with a patient, you need to quickly solve a problem. So I think there are lots and lots of drivers that got us here, and there are lots and lots of things that are going to be required to address the harms of opioids, but also to ensure that people who require opioids to live well with pain have access to them. And just to, to add can, some, oh, sorry, sorry go ahead. Sorry, Fiona, no, go, yeah. I just wanted to add one more thing uh, that um, uh, Maria said about the seven-minute appointment for someone living with pain. So not only is it easiest to write a prescription, easier to write a prescription for an opioid uh, in that time frame, but also uh, other services such as uh, Uh, to be able to be seen by a physiotherapist or a mental health provider is not generally publicly funded. So that is a huge barrier as well and something which I I feel really needs to be addressed uh, in order to provide a balanced pain treatment within the biopsychosocial framework and not just focused on um, medication. Thanks. Absolutely. And I think, uh, so when I think about some of the challenges that we've started to see, uh, especially when the opiate... uh, the restrictions around the college started coming in is that we even had clinicians that would not prescribe opiates for patients who were living with, uh, who were palliative care, end of life type situations. So that's when you really saw that pendulum switch. And you thought, okay, this is like any other medication that we, we prescribe that has some risk. We have to manage the risk with the patient, manage the risk with the family, you know, use the tools that we have, have those communications with patients. Most patients are incredibly grateful when you have a conversation around how we're going to manage risk around this medication, and especially if they have young people in the house. And we, we, we've kind of created this absolute fear. And I think, well, we do this every day with other high-risk medications. I just think about the, the anti-clotting drugs um, and how I try and manage risk with patients around those medications. It's very infrequent that we see patients who are living with pain misuse their medication. Um, but we need to have those conversations in an open way that's non-judgmental. You know, be compassionate. All those things that I think are really what bring us to healthcare in the first place, or to be able to engage with uh, with people. I'm, I'm sure that there's still the same challenges. I, I'm seeing a lot of challenges, especially in our communities. I'm not sure about your communities around the use of cannabis. Nova Scotia has the highest uh, use of cannabis in Canada, uh, in particular in our 15 to uh, 20 year old age group. And um, so we are still seeing a lot of hurt around cannabis. And one of the challenges, I think, um, when we look at how, how therapy is guided by evidence, we know that there's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there, but we don't have the science that we need, I feel anyway, to kind of be helping patients make informed decisions around the use of cannabis as well. And I'm curious about both of your thoughts around that. And maybe what I'll do is start with Fiona first. I completely agree with you. 
Uh, we don't have the evidence, uh, which doesn't mean that there is no evidence for effectiveness. It just means that there's insufficient evidence to draw any conclusions. However, I uh, am very mindful that, uh, well, let me begin by saying we do have cannabinoid receptors throughout our body, which therefore suggests that they are involved in our kind of physiological homeostatic mechanisms and therefore might seem to be a reasonable target uh, for uh, therapeutics. And so I'll begin with that to say I'm open-minded about that, but I am concerned that we have this insufficient evidence uh, and yet people are drawing vast conclusions from anecdotal evidence about effectiveness. We also, whenever we talk about effectiveness of medications, we need to be considering their harms. And we know that there are harms associated with cannabinoids. These are not a panacea. Um, there are many compounds within uh, cannabis itself. Um, THC, tetrahydrocannabinoid, uh, is an active ingredient that works for pain, but it also induces um, psychological side effects such as dysphoria, euphoria, being high, and so on. And there is cannabidiol, uh, which also may have some analgesic properties, but it has the benefit of not uh, having those um, same harmful side effects. Uh, the problem is that CBD alone um, doesn't seem to be super effective, so you need to add in bits of THC, and THC is the medication that has the side effects. So uh, I think the uh, while I would love to be able to make some broad uh, statements about, yes, we should use um, uh, cannabis for this and we shouldn't use it for that, we just can't because mm. we don't have um, the evidence to inform that. Uh, however, I do not think, uh, I, I, I really truly believe that when you see a patient, you have someone in front of you, you need to tailor care to that patient. Mm. And if they have tried lots of other things, they're responsible they have said that they would like to try this or indeed they have and it's helpful. Uh, I don't think that we um, should, uh, I just don't think that we're in a position to have the right to refuse that as an option, but it involves a complicated, informed conversation to the extent it can be informed that we really don't know about the evidence for effectiveness and there is evidence for harm so people can make a balanced decision. Um, it's just not very clear. I hope I've clarified that a bit. It Thanks. is. It is. I, I actually, and especially in our cancer palliative care populations, there's, there's a lot of misinformation in particular around certain types of oils. I always call this navigating hope. You know, you're trying to navigate hope with the patient, and um, it, both from a, from a pain perspective, but also from the cancer pain perspective as well, or cancer cure perspective. So, um, so yeah, cannabis is a is a really interesting substance, and you just kind of I find myself just supporting patients through that decision making, trying to get them to see what's working, what's not. But it is really truly about navigating hope. I'm curious about your thoughts about this, Maria. I think about it in the context of a time where people have such limited access to the things that have historically been used. So opioids, access there is being limited. Uh, we don't yet have uh, access to many of the things that we know work. So we don't have publicly funded access to physiotherapy and psychological support and uh, very accessible community-based self-management programs. 
So I'm so aware and hear daily from people who live with pain about just wanting to try cannabis because they're out of options. And, you know, they've heard from friends that it has improved, even if it doesn't improve everyone's pain, you know, for many people, they find it improves sleep or it improves relaxation. Um, So I think, uh, it's frustrating when we hear so often, you know, there's not enough evidence. And at the same time, people are often at the end of their end of the road. They're needing yeah. some kind of help and uh, medication to be able to function in their daily lives. And um, we always say to people, you know, it isn't a panacea. You have to approach cannabis the way you would approach anything else as a trial in a very structured way. And it's worth doing for people for whom uh, they don't have significant other uh, risks at play in their lives. So um, I think I just, I'm very pragmatic. I yeah. obviously want to approach it in an evidence-based way, but I'm just aware that people living with pain do not have a lot of choices. And we have to keep that in mind when people ask for help in getting access to medical cannabis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's just trying to, to find that balance in working with patients for sure. So we're getting close mm-hmm. to the end here, but I just wanted to um, give you guys an opportunity to talk about what the next phase of the task force is and what we can expect to see and how, if I'm not sure if there's an opportunity for the public to get involved. And if you want to talk about that, maybe I'll start with Fiona and then we'll go to Marie. The process between the publication of the first report last June and the next report, which will be published this summer uh, in June, um, there is there has been stakeholder engagement across Canada, which is underway and has been uh, terrific. And we have great representation from all stakeholder groups, including many that we've discussed today. But specifically, I would like to mention the online consultation uh, process, which is, uh, I don't have the date for when that's coming out, but it's soon. And we're going to spread that through media, social media channels, and we can send you a link to it that perhaps you can can include uh, in association with this podcast uh, for people to participate. uh, And uh, Maria spoke to this previously. um, So that's uh, for everyone, whether you be a healthcare professional, a parent, a caregiver, a patient, a policymaker. So there's huge opportunity for that. And that will inform the next iteration of the uh, not the next iteration, sorry, the second uh, task force report. So, um, yeah, Maria, perhaps you can add to that. Yeah, we're just waiting for the link to go live, and that should happen very soon. So we'll be spreading uh, the link to the online consultation far and wide. And then there have been lots of targeted uh, opportunities for discussion. So I was uh, privileged to have a discussion with a number of uh, family physicians, including you, Maureen, at the Family Medicine Forum. Uh, There's been discussions with specialists, with uh, specific Indigenous engagement uh, work that happened in Manitoba. So 
you know, we're really trying to hear from a diverse group of stakeholders and lay out what an improved approach to pain care education research and data is going to look like in our country. I had a little peek at the questionnaire. It looks actually really great, and it looks pretty easy to navigate, actually. So it's it should be a lot of fun to go through that. <laughs> Put your two cents in. Um, okay, right. so I think we're going to wrap it up, but I wonder if there's any other last thoughts that you may have or any anything, any sense of, I mean, I feel more hopeful. I actually felt very hopeful after I read the task, but I know that seems crazy, but sometimes we, in healthcare in particular, you have this learned helplessness that starts to develop, especially when they keep trying to change how we're delivering care. And Nova Scotia has gone through this drastic restructuring, which has created some significant challenges for us. But I must say, when I read the report, I felt more hopeful, but I'm wonder if there's any last thoughts that, that uh, you have, Marie, and then we'll go to Fiona and, and end it there. Yeah, you know, I am feeling very hopeful as well. I think when the task force was initially created, many people, including Fiona and I, <laughs> um, questioned, you know, okay, the task force has a three-year mandate. Does that mean nothing's going to happen for three years? And none of us could abide that thought. And, you know, I think we engaged in this work because we believe that there are lots of ways to affect change. We need bottom-up strategies. We need top-down strategies. And I think we're seeing already momentum. Uh, We're seeing things like this new Veterans Center of Excellence. We're seeing the Association of Faculties of Medicine of Canada being mandated to create pain curriculum for all 17 medical schools. Um, Yesterday, we had an initial meeting with the people who crunch the numbers and do the data work around the cost of big problems in Canada. So this is a new initiative to really look at the economic burden of chronic pain in Canada and drive change through that mechanism. So I think we really feel hopeful as well, Maureen. This is, we are hitting the tipping point and we need to keep the pressure on, you know, this is not cart. This is not heart disease. This is not diabetes. Mm. It's still an issue that needs the collective shoulder to the wheel uh, to make sure that we don't lose ground just as we've gained um, the traction. So the work's not done, but I think it's definitely a positive, positive momentum. Absolutely. Maybe Marie or Fiona, I'll get you to uh, comment. What are you hopeful yeah, for? <laughs> so, so, so I so I share um, your optimism, which is a good thing because I've learned recently that optimism helps one live longer. <laughs> um, but uh, optimism, uh, but not complacency. Uh, and I, I think I, I don't really have anything to add to what Marie has just said. I, I mean, I, we're very aligned in our thinking of this uh, around uh, these issues. But I do just want to acknowledge a, a few people. One is a very important Nova Scotian, Mary. Lynch, who was president of the Canadian Pain Society and who drove the last national pain strategy uh, initiative. And without her work, I don't think we would be where we are now. Mm. I also want to acknowledge the other people on the task force and on the external advisory panel, and very importantly, the secretariat who's been dedicated by Health Canada to support uh, our 
work. Um, and um, thank you, of course, for the interview. But most importantly, uh, to thank the people living with this disabling condition who are contributing to making this um, a, a meaningful uh, initiative um, yes. politically. Uh, well, and in every way. So, um, yes, I, I, I don't have anything to yeah. add beyond that. That's well said. All right. Well, we're going to end here, but we're going to make sure that we put some links to the podcast and hopefully we'll get some comments. But thank you both so much for giving me some of your time. Um, I found this very helpful and very informative, and hopefully we'll see each other in about two weeks' time. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, all right. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.